I hope you had an uh, excellent conclusion to your 4th of July weekend. Uh, it's always nice when those kind of celebrations kind of can take over two different weekends. If, if you uh, live in the area, you know that Johnsburg and Sticky Bay had their fireworks last night, uh, and there were some other ones that went off the, the, uh, last weekend, and so it's all kinds of different times to celebrate. But one of the things that I, I would imagine, again, I, I wasn't a part of uh, your week, but I would imagine that you probably ran into family and friends, right? You probably had at some point a time with, uh, whether it be just immediate family or extended family, friends from high school, friends from back in the day, friends from right now, from whatever season of life you're in, uh, you probably spent some time with others. And the question I want us to look at here this morning is how did you come to know those in your life? How did you build that relationship that you have with them? Maybe you spent some formative years together. You go back, uh, you were in high school together, you were in college together, you did some silly things, uh, the stories that you don't want your kids to hear about quite yet. Um, you, you did some things together, and, and maybe you're just in a season of life. Maybe you're still in high school right now, and it's, it's those close friends. Um, or you're in a season of life, just started having kids or you're just getting rid of the kids and, and kind of uh, learning a, a new sense to the word freedom um, in your home. And uh, you, you, whatever season it is, maybe that's what draws you together with your peers or your, those extended family. Maybe you grew up hearing stories about your crazy Uncle Eddie. And, and so what you believe about your uncle comes from the stories you've been told. And what's interesting about that is depending on who's telling their st those stories, depending on their viewpoint, uh, you can all of a sudden find different people who look at the same person rather differently based, based on past experiences or what stories have been shared. Maybe you went through a traumatic event with an, a, ran a random associate. I had a moment like this in my life where um, I don't need to go into all the details of the story, but the people I, I, I knew through my dad were acquaintances, just, you know, we're down visiting him and uh, some of his friends that went through a traumatic event that uh, kind of pulled uh, my family into the, the story a little bit. Um, you know, we'll never forget them. You know, now, do we talk on the phone on a regular basis? No, we haven't talked probably since then, uh, but we're, we've been drawn closer. We got to know each other. Because of something like that. See, it, whether it's over time, in relationship, through someone else and their stories, uh, there's all kinds of different ways that we've come to know other people, right? And, and again, depending on how that was, how that relationship came about, depending on how you come, came to know what you believe to be true about someone, you could have two people who look at the same person and see them very differently, right? And one may have a very accurate understanding of who that person is, while the other one may have a very jaded understanding. They may be completely off. In college, one of my, uh, now my wife, but before she was my wife, one of her friends didn't like me simply because at one point I dated another girl on her volleyball team. And just didn't know any stories. Oh, he dated someone else. And just for whatever reason, that was enough. She didn't like me and had, had no desire to get to know who I was and that kind of thing. And so it was like, okay, well, that's, that's not an accurate view of who I am. I like to think I'm a nice guy, but whatever. And so people can have these views and they can be wrong in that. What's interesting is see, when it comes to knowing Jesus, I think we employ these same tactics. How we've come to know Jesus, for each one of us here this morning, is probably very different. Some of us may be here this morning and we have no idea who Jesus is. We, you know, this is the first time we're hearing about them, or just we never really uh, delved into it or, or never really had an opportunity to. And, and if that's you, we're glad you're here because one thing that we talk about on a regular basis is Jesus. And even this morning, uh, the title for the series is Who is Jesus? We want to answer some of those questions and unpack uh, that question. 
But I imagine that we all had different ways that we came to know who Jesus is wherever you are in that journey today. Maybe you grew up in a church setting and you went to a Sunday morning Bible study. We sent our fourth and fifth graders up to, to learn, have their own lesson. Maybe you went through something like that. And maybe you grew beyond that or maybe you're still here as an adult now, um, but your understanding of Jesus never grew beyond a Sunday school teaching. It never grew beyond those stories. And so when life gets difficult, when all of a sudden you find yourself at a place of not knowing what to do, this, this Sunday school God doesn't seem to be uh, able to, to interact, doesn't seem to be able to, to fit with the adult and, and, and real world challenges you're having. Maybe you've always been told who Jesus was. You, you haven't really uh, looked into it for yourself. You've just always been told and taught by, uh, by parents, by preachers, or, or by your peers. And you've just accepted what they've told you. And maybe some of that's been accurate. Maybe it's been off. Um, there's also another way we come to know others and other ways we come to know Jesus. I, I call the radio station style, where we just kind of pick, the, you know, we kind of pick up a little bit here or there, but we kind of take the parts that we like and just focus on that. Kind of like when you're turning different stations on the radio. I don't know if you're like this. In our car, uh, we have, you know, all the different favorite stations that we like. And, man, I'll, I'll flip through them all, like, for minutes until I find a song that, that I like. And, okay, now we're going to sit on that one. But I've been flipping for songs for so long, the song's almost over. So it plays for 30 seconds. Then I'm flipping for the next three minutes and driving my wife crazy. But you, know, you kind of, kind of, oh, here's some different aspects. Oh, this is, a, this is a fun part of Jesus. Did you know that he turned water into wine? One of my favorite parables. You know, I mean, we, we kind of focus on those. and we, we, we allow that to really paint the entire picture when it's just a piece of that picture. It's just a piece of who Jesus is. So I call it the, the, the radio station style. Maybe it's been your own personal study. You've, you've dug into God's word, either on your own or with others. And um, you know, chances are, it's probably been a mix. Who you know Jesus to be today has probably been a, a mix of all these different sources. But see, we, we, if we were each to talk to each other and find out, hey, who do you believe Jesus to be? I imagine there'd be some differences, right? There'd be some differences. We, we can look at uh, world religions, and they all have a different opinion of who Jesus is. For the Jews who don't believe he was the Messiah, they would see him as simply a rabbi. Muslims actually revere Jesus. They, they see him as a prophet. Mormons would see him as the first to become a god. Not originally god, but one who became a god. Jehovah's Witnesses would see him as a lesser god, less than the Father. Buddhists would see him simply as a wise teacher. Yet Jesus' actions and his words and, and what we read about him in the scriptures they point to a very clear and a full picture of who Jesus is. And I hope that uh, as we walk through this uh, time together this morning, I hope that you would see Jesus again for the first time with fresh eyes. And if you've never come to know who he is, I, I pray that you would come to know a little bit about who Jesus is more than you do walking in here this morning. Because see, here at Meadowland, we believe uh, that, that Jesus is the greatest life. And in knowing him and in living our life in him, we can live our greatest life in him. And I'm not just talking about, in a sense, of the greatest life, like we can have the most success from a worldly perspective. I'm talking about uh, what Jesus promised us, that we can have peace and joy and hope and eternity found in him. So we're talking about the greatest life. Yes, there still may and will be challenges and difficulty in this life, but man, we can, we can work through those because... We can know that our greatest life is found in Jesus. So we've been, we'll be journeying through the book of Colossians as we go through this series. We kicked it off uh, last week. And see, like us today, the Colossians, uh, that they were this young church that started strong and they were surrounded by all these kind of false views 
of Jesus. Just like I listed off all these other possible beliefs or other, other religions' takes on who Jesus is, they had others around them that were giving them a false understanding of Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul and, and, and Timothy, and, and basically they, they wrote this letter to the Colossian church. They want to encourage them in their faith. They want to encourage them to say, hey, you know who Jesus is, and let me, let me remind you of that truth. Because here's some of the, 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 the false teachings they were surrounded by. One of them was Jews who uh, accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, but they had a hard time letting go of their Jewish past. And so uh, as they kind of struggled with that, they kind of came up with this sense of, okay, well, well, this is what it looks like to follow God. You receive Jesus as Lord and Savior and then live as a Jew who sees Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so there were Jewish things that they would call them to do when really that's not what Jesus was was about. And so that was this this false teaching, this misunderstanding of who Jesus was. another false teaching that they had to deal with was this Gnostic belief. Gnostics, what they believe is that anything material, anything we can touch and see and feel, they would see that as evil. And anything spiritual, they would see as good. They elevated uh, the spiritual aspects of life. And so why is that that important to know? Well, as we begin to see who Jesus is, as we're looking at this morning, we see he's the image of God. He is God in the flesh. To a Gnostic, they would say, okay, if he is God in the flesh, that makes him a lesser God because he's tangible. He's, he's part of this physical world. And their uh, uh, backwards understanding of who God was, they said, hey, the, the holier you are, the, be- the, 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 the better of a God you are, the further from this world you would be. And so when they see this Messiah, this Jesus who came in the flesh, that's not something that would elevate him, but something that w- would diminish him. They would say Jesus, that they would kind of lump him in with all these other lesser false gods that they would allow into their belief system. And so the Colossians have all these kind of misunderstandings of Jesus surrounding them. And so they're they're standing strong in Jesus, but they're dealing with all these temptations. And Paul's writing this letter to say, hey, stay strong. This is who Jesus is. We looked last week uh, as Paul kind of reminded them, uh, first of all, their reality in Jesus we saw three different statements that we kind of unpacked here last week that both the Colossians and then us, we find ourselves in Jesus. We have a redeemed past, right? We are greater than our past. Our past does not define us. We are not hamstrung by our regrets or past decisions. But that in Jesus, those, those past stories are redeemed. We are forgiven. We are made clean. And because of that, uh, we have a fruitful present. So the Colossians have a fruitful present. That when we find ourselves abiding in Jesus, we find ourselves uh, uh, living the greatest life in Jesus, the greatest life, that we bear fruit in all that we do. That we make an impact in our world. We saw last week how they were, the Colossians were equipped to bear fruit in every good work. See, sometimes we, we focus too much on the fruit itself. You know, if we're trying to be kind, we would say, well, I want to bear the fruit of kindness, and so I'm just going to, I'm going to be kind. You know what? I don't care what anyone else says about it. I'm going to be kind. I mean, we, we almost get mean about being kind. It's like, well, that's, that's not, it doesn't work that way. You can't put an orange in an apple tree and all of a sudden have an orange tree. But instead, when we abide in Jesus, we, we remain in him, when we be who we are made to be, when an orange tree is just simply an orange tree, it bears oranges, it bears fruit. 
And so we see that we have a redeemed past, we have a fruitful present, and we also see, same as the Colossians, that in Jesus we have a secured future, that we know how the story is going to end, which is an amazing truth when you're going through difficulties in life. When you're wondering when is the challenge of this life going to be over, we can remind ourselves and encourage one another that we know the end of the story. Has there ever been a, a movie you've watched that maybe get really into movies and it's an intense one, or maybe it's just one of those that's just really tugging on your heartstrings, but maybe it's based on a true story, so you already know how it's going to end, or it's based on a book, and so you know how it's going to end, and, and you still get so caught up in it, and it's still you show real emotions that you struggle through, but there's always that hope and that joy because you know how the story ends. And so that was what we talked about last week. And, and from that place, I want us to turn now, instead of seeing who we are in Jesus, let's turn the focus to Jesus himself. Who is Jesus? And that's the question we're going to seek to answer here this morning. If you've got a Bible here with you this morning, go ahead and open up to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 15. Um, there's Bibles in the pews if you need one. You can go online and go digital with it if you want. There's free Wi-Fi in the building, so you can access that easily, uh, more easily. Uh, and then it'll be on the screen as well. Uh, but we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Uh, before we get into our text, I want you to think about how you would answer that question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? How would you answer that? Maybe if you want, if, you got, if, you, if you're a note taker, go ahead and, and jot down some notes. If you're not a note taker, hand your, your, your bulletin to the person next to you and tell them your answer and they can jot it down for you. But just, uh, who is Jesus? Just take a moment. How would you answer that? It's okay to put a question mark. It's okay to say, I don't know. Or I'm not sure. Or I think this. Here's some things I've, I've learned, but I'm not quite sure. But that's the question we want to have on our hearts and our minds as we go into Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 and on, is who is Jesus? Paul's going to jump right in. With the, the passage we're jumping into starts with he, and this is, if we go back to the, the previous verse, he's referring to Jesus here. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Just those few verses, there is a lot to unpack. There. We're, we're just going to scratch the surface of that here this morning. Uh, but first thing is that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. These first two statements we're going to look at, are interesting because uh, we just got done kind of setting the stage how one of the things, one of the challenges that's going on here with the Colossians is that there's these other beliefs that would say Jesus is lesser, that he's not sufficient in and of, in and of himself. There's other things you need to add to your faith, other things uh, for a life with God. And we're going to say that Paul's going to combat that and say, no, Jesus is the greatest. But all of a sudden he gives these, these analogies that at first glance may seem like, well, hang on, if, if, if Jesus is, is the image, is not like saying he's like, he's like a photocopy? Have you guys seen the movie Multiplicity? I know that's an older one. I'm dating myself here a little bit. Um, but it you know, plays off the whole concept, what if we could clone yourself? And uh, then the clone clones himself, and then that clone clones himself. And, and uh, you know, if you ever make a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, the the image quality kind of dies down a little bit, and that's, as, as the movie plays out, you see the, uh, the silliness kind of ensue as you go from uh, uh, the original down to this copy of a copy of a copy that just, you know, hilarity ensues. Um, when you think of image, and at first glance, it seems like, well, no, wouldn't that be lesser? But we see that uh, the context here is we look at the rest of the passage, we look back at the words of Greek, uh, we see that um, 
this doesn't say mean image in the sense of a copy, but image in the sense of Jesus is the exact representation and revelation of God. He's the exact representation and revelation of God. And this can be a challenging concept. It really can. Because it really points us to the concept of the Trinity. If you're not familiar with the concept of the Trinity, it says you have God the Father, God the Son, who's Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. They're three in one. Together, they make up God. Individually, they are God. I've heard all kinds of different analogies that try to help us get our head around the concept of the Trinity, uh, and they simply fall short. Everyone I've heard is always uh, one part plus one part plus one part makes one whole, when in reality, the, God, the, the Trinity is one whole plus one whole plus one whole makes one whole. You can think of an egg. You have the shell, the white, and the yolk. Father, Son, Spirit, but together they're an egg. But again, that falls short. Think of it this way. If you imagine a pie chart, we're trying to draw on this pie chart, who is God? You could have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that, that make up this pie chart of who is God. But what's interesting is then, okay, well, how much of the pie chart is Jesus? All of it. How much of the chart is God, the Father? All of it. How much of the pie chart is the Holy Spirit? All of it. Jesus is, is the image. He's exact representation, the revelation of God. And Paul continues, again, at first glance, it seems like he's actually saying that Jesus is a lesser God, but when we go back and, and unpack a little bit, we see just the opposite. He says, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn of all creation. Uh, again, at first glance, you think firstborn, well, would that, wouldn't that mean that he was created? Wouldn't that mean that he wasn't always God? That's what it sounds like. Again, firstborn can refer to that which comes first, that which is born first, but we also see it can mean supreme or special. What gets translated here as firstborn can also mean supreme. We see in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, uh, God's uh, speaking to Moses, telling him what to say to Pharaoh as he's calling him to uh, go and, and be a spokesperson for him to the Pharaoh. Um, and he says this, he says, God uh, refers to Israel as his firstborn son. There's some figurative, figurativeness here going on because uh, a nation is not a son, but he's saying it's his firstborn son. But there are other nations, many others who have come before Israel. And so there's got to be something else here. It can't simply mean that which came first, and it doesn't. He's saying it's special, set apart, supreme. We even see you know, in different biblical stories where the firstborn received the inheritance of the father. To be the firstborn was this seat of honor, and yet the honor of the firstborn didn't always go to the firstborn. One of the clearest pictures is, is Jacob and Esau. Esau was the oldest. But Jacob got the birthright. And so this firstborn of all creation is saying that Jesus is supreme over all creation. And what's interesting is if you just keep reading, the context explains it. You don't have to believe me. Go look, go look at what the, script, what the scriptures say. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Doesn't leave much room for gap, Right? How much? All of it. So if all things were created through Jesus, how could he be created? If all things are created through Jesus, how could he himself be created? And so we see there's not much wiggle room there. So Jesus is the exact representation of God. Jesus is, is uh, supreme over all creation. All creation was made through him. 
That might be a, a new concept for you. Maybe you've never really heard it uh, put that way. You've never uh, seen this passage. See, well, so Jesus has always existed. That, that first and foremost might, might be a new concept for you. Maybe your first understanding of when Jesus enters the picture is uh, what we celebrate at Christmas time, the birth of Jesus. But we actually see as we look through Scripture that, no, Jesus has always been. He is fully God. He's been there since the beginning. He aligns himself uh, with, with the title, I am. I am is a title that the Father gave uh, himself when he's speaking to, to Moses through the burning bush. And we see Jesus in the New Testament refers to himself as I am. He, he's aligning himself with the God of the universe because he's saying, I am. I always have been. I always will be. So not only has he always existed, but he created all things. If you're struggling with this, I encourage you, uh, in your own time, give a careful reading over Genesis chapters 1, 2, and you can get into some 3 if you want, but really uh, look in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And I want you to specifically look at the pronouns. Because you'll see this transition from, from plural to singular and plural, and it goes back and forth, where we see uh, God saying, let us create man in our image, in the image of God, he created them. Which is it? Well, again, yes, it is. It's both the Trinity, Father, Son, and the Spirit, and yet each one in, in, in and of themselves is fully God. So Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. I want to take us down a little bunny trail, a little tangent real quick, because um, it fits and it makes sense. It's something I think we, we need to talk about, um, speaking in relationship to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and kind of as you get into there. Um, what, what's found there? What, what does Genesis 1 and 2 talk about? If you have no understanding of the Bible, it's the very beginning. First chapter, first, uh, first book of the Bible, first chapter. And, and you can guess that, yeah, it talks about some of the beginning. Um, up until recently, I would always say, okay, well, it's, it's a story of how God created the world, right? And we read through that, and we see it's about this how. But uh, as I've continued to study that and kind of unpack, I see that's kind of the, the, the wrong way to look at it. The, the how of creation is not the point of Genesis 1, 2, and into 3. It's not the point. I think sometimes we get so caught up as we read the how and one, okay, so what does this talk about? What does this mean? What does this look like? How do I live my life in light of what Genesis 1 and 2 is, is talking about? The how is not the point, and yet we get so caught up in that. The who and the what is the point of Genesis 1 and 2. I mean, it's the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible. In the very first verse of that, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You can just th- Shorten that. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created. And so what do we find in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3? We see the who of creation, and we see the what. The who is, is God. The focus of these passages is God. And the what is what did he do? He created that this is his show. That he calls the shots. He is the one who is supreme over all of this. And so in light of this, since the how is not the main point, let us not be divisive over the how. Let us not be divisive over the how. I've seen too many brothers and sisters in Christ going at each other because one adheres to a young earth view of creation, of the how. They would see the, the days of creation as six literal days, seven literal days. And, and, and their opponent on the other side, they're having a conversation with, what would tied to an old earth view of creation. They would see those days as time periods, as eras in history. 
And, and, and there's a whole slew of, of different kind of uh, theories as to the how within that, that realm of old earth, or young earth, whether the earth is only about 6,000 years old or if it's millions and millions of years old. And, and I've seen people come to a place of divisiveness over this when it's not the point. The how of, it, of creation is not the point, but the who and the what. I can't say this enough. You can hold to a different belief on the how. And you can even, you can, you can support it, you can defend it, you can be excited about it, and that's fine. But let's not elevate that above the point of the passage, which is God. In the beginning, God. He is primary in creation. It's not the methods that, that are trying to be conveyed here. What's so interesting, we stop and look at, at um, humanity, as long as we've been on this earth, as long as we can see, and the amount of time that we've had the ability and the skills and the knowledge to unpack science and be able to look at the same evidence that everyone else looks at when we try to figure out how all this came to be. Uh, it's a very short amount of time that we've had the tools and the knowledge that we have today to try to interpret, okay, what would this look like? How was this created? But the message that's given has been given to all time, right? And so if as part of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, if God really started to unpack the how, well, is there a way to communicate that in a way that this speaks to all time? I mean, just now we're starting to get into the, the understanding of science to see um, some of the, the, the finer points of, of how God might have done it. Again, see, that's, that's not the point. The how is not the point. It, this, this text was written to communicate to all time. And so universal terms are used, and, and it conveys the truth of what it's about, about God and that he created. In the beginning, God. So all things were created by Jesus and for Jesus. This much is clear. Again, we can, we can have all kinds of conversations on the how. I, I see people struggle with, what they see in science and, and what they've been taught. Maybe you've been taught one way and, and you, you see a, a strong argument for the other way. You've, you've been taught a young earth and you see a strong argument for old earth or the other way around. And I, I could give examples of people that have gone through these journeys. But let us not be divisive. We can disagree on the how and stand united on the who and the what because all things were created by Jesus and for Jesus. This much is clear. You know what else this means? As we look at sciences, as we look at the world around us, this means that uh, scientific concepts, I'm sorry, not concepts, scientific constants are the very thoughts of Jesus. You can look at science, it's okay, gravity always falls at 9.8 meters per second squared. You know, the, the, the constant of pi, 3.14, anyone got it beyond that? That's all I got. I remember pi to three spaces, <laughs> whatever. There you go. We got a few. I knew there'd be at least one or two out here. But these constants that we see in, in the created world around us, these, these give us a glimpse into who God is. And so many times when, when, when um, there, there's something miraculous that happens and then someone says, well, here's how that could have happened in science. I say, that, that's cool. It, it doesn't surprise me that there's a way to explain these amazing supernatural things through natural terms because honestly, it, all that is created that we see as natural was created by God. However he did it, it was created by him. He is sovereign over it all. It was created by him and for him. And we're going to see that he sustains all of it. So would it surprise me to see uh, 
God using his own creation to accomplish his, his goals? No. The, the super, supernatural element typically plays out in the timing and, and the circumstances by which things happen. I'm getting off track here a little bit, but when we look at science and all that we can learn, this doesn't battle against who God is, but this reveals who he is. Don't be afraid to, to, to study and see uh, this, more about this created world because as we learn more about it, it reveals more about who our God is. The diversity of the world reflects the creativity of Jesus. You ever stop and, you, you, why did God ever make this? When you get that one, one last mosquito bite, God, why did you make the mosquitoes? You know, I'm not sure what that is. I don't know what your mosquito is, but you get that point. God, why did you make this? Sometimes, again, this is my, my own guess. I don't, I, don't have, I don't have scripture to back this up. I think God sometimes created things just because he was creative. And we, he probably really had a heyday when he was making insects. Hey, let me give you a few more, okay? You're going to love this one. I'm going to give it this really weird horn off the front of its face, and it's going to be creepy, and it's going to roll piles of poop, you know, the dung beetle. I don't know. I don't know why that is the way it is. Or here, Here's one that sucks ants out of holes. I mean, you, you think about all the different animals that God's made. We see the, the creativity, diversity of our God. What, what a beautiful picture. All right. I think I spent enough time on that. Let's, let's go back to our text here. Uh, we're picking up here in verse 18. Again, referring to Jesus. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. First off, we see here Jesus is the head of the church. He is the head of the church. Every church is his. And as such, we should submit to him and his word. This is one of the reasons why as a church we're so passionate about living as disciples of Jesus and making more disciples of Jesus because the church is his. We say it this way. We want to see lives changed by Jesus and disciples of Jesus made. See, Meadowland is not my church. Yeah, I'm the pastor. But I can't say Meadowland's my church because I'm the pastor. I, I didn't start it, and, and God willing, I don't end it. <laughs> But the church is God's. He is the head. Uh, I've been a part of uh, different church plants over my uh, history and uh, seen different ones. And, and uh, unfortunately, sometimes I've seen someone want to plant the church out of frustration. They, lo they look around all the local churches and say, I can't find one that fits me. I can't find one that does everything just the way I want to. Which, again, is the wrong way to look at the begin with because it's not about us, but whatever. Um, and, and so they, they, they want to start their own church so they can have everything their way. But the problem is other people start to come. And, and the second that happens, it's no longer yours anymore. It's not all the way that you'd want to be. Uh, I can't stand up here and say that everything that's done here at Meadowland is the way that I would do it. And that's, that's not a bad thing, you know? Because I'm, I'm broken. I got my own faults, my own mistakes. That's why we as a body are doing all this together. What if your toes said, hey, we got this, hands. We got it covered. And your toes try to be your hands. I know there's one or two folks out there that can play pretty mean chopsticks with their toes, but that's about as far as we get, right? I mean, seriously, if you don't believe me, when lunchtime comes, don't use your hands. Okay? Try your toes. Kids, I'm sorry. Parents, I'm sorry if your kids try that. You know, you can, you can blame me. But the body doesn't work that way. We, we, we have to come together and work together with Jesus as our head. And so yes, there's leadership. Yes, there's different structures within that. 
But the church is God's, and we submit to him and to his word. Together, we are the body. You say, hey, that, that, that's the, the barn that my church meets in. But, but we are the church as followers of Jesus, with Jesus as the head. He is the head of the church. There's a, a growing trend I've seen in our culture where people uh, just question everything. Even some things that people would say, this would have been sacred a few years ago. They're just questioning everything. And first of all, if you have questions, please don't be afraid to ask them. Even the big tough ones that you, know, you may ask and, and we'll be like, uh, I'm not sure. Let's walk together and see if we can figure that out. Don't be afraid to ask your questions. But uh, I see people questioning everything and then coming to a place where they live apart from the church. Say, hey, I don't need the church because you know what? Um, uh, it's so full of brokenness and issues and, and, and you know, struggles to be relevant and they have all these hiccups, all these challenges and so they disengage. But see, a body... First of all, it relies on its head, but it relies on the body as well. And this, this could be a whole other sermon, so I'm just scratching the surface on this. But if Jesus is the head of the church, then our church life should be found in him. Why, why do we gather? One of the reasons we gather is because we're the body. We gather to be the body, to live as a body, to worship as a body, to learn as the body, to do life together as God has called us to go and make disciples. And that's not meant to be done in isolation, but as the body, with Jesus as the head. You take the head off, the body dies. In Jesus, there is life. He is the head of the church. He is our life. And that's why we live the way that we do. We also see in there that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, that he might be preeminent in all things. In this sense, it's saying, yes, he, he's the first to come back. And you can say, well, didn't he raise Lazarus from the dead before? It's talking about in the sense where uh, an overcoming of death, not just uh, a back from the dead, but that Jesus had overcome, had defeated death that he'd be preeminent. He was the first to overcome death and eternity. Uh, he made a way for us to have eternal life with him. You might say, well, Steve, why, why do I even need a way? Because we, we had a need to be reconciled. He unpacks this a little bit more here uh, in the rest we're going to look at for this morning. Colossians 1, 21 through 23. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So we see that we are alienated from God. We were separated from God. We talk about this uh, quite often here at Meadowland because of our decisions, because uh, what Scripture calls sin, the ways that we've gone against uh, the will of God that separates us from God. The clearest first picture we see of this is in the garden. Adam and Eve were no longer in the garden. We are no longer in the garden of Eden. We're no longer in that kind of relationship with God because of our sin. We become alienated from him. We become separated from him. Sin changes relationship. Period. Sin changes relationship, drives a wedge, causes separation. But thankfully, we're reconciled through Jesus. So we're alienated from God, but we're reconciled through Jesus. Uh, reconciled means to restore relationship. And it comes through the blood of his cross. We saw that in verse uh, 20. We're reconciled through Jesus. So we're alienated from God, we're reconciled through Jesus. We're, we're then presented as holy and blameless before God. Man, this is great news. I mean, think about that. We're separated from God, but then through Jesus, uh, he makes a way for us to be restored, be reconciled, and now we're presented before God as holy 
and blameless. Think of the, the biggest mistakes you've made in life. Maybe, maybe even the police were involved. And you got arrested. And then you stood before a judge. And you, you knew what you did. They knew what you did. They had video of it. You know, these days you get video of everything. And you stood before that judge. And all of a sudden he said, you're free to go. You are holy and blameless in this courtroom. That, that's the truth, the reality of what the work of Jesus did, did at the cross. That we are reconciled and we can be presented to God as holy and blameless. Now maybe if you were, were, were kind of following there with me in verse 23, there might be a word that caused a little concern, if. If. So is there a stipulation here? Is it kind of a if then? As long as I do this, then, then God will, will keep his end of the deal. And, and really, again, we, we unpack the original text there. and uh, That if there is better understood as, as since. As since. Kind of say, hey, this is how we, we have this kind of relationship. Uh, uh, we continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister so it's better understood as sin so as we continue in our faith this is the truth of what jesus does in our lives as i was thinking on this uh, i was struck by the fact that i think too often we concern ourselves with losing that which is permanent with losing that which is transformative let me, let me explain uh, imagine growing up okay not very difficult no matter how old you are today, you can look back and say, man, I've grown up some. Can you ever pull a true Benjamin button? Could you ever get shorter? Well, maybe you can shrink a little bit. I don't know. But like, actually go back and be less uh, uh, grown as you are today. We, we may not progress. We could get stuck in different uh, phases of development, but we don't grow backwards. I mean, it's like that we're transformed by Jesus we're now made holy and blameless. That's something that, that we're guaranteed that, that, that's permanent as we walk in him. And so that's, that, that's an if, it's a kind of sense. As we walk in faith, this is the reality of what happens. And, and we, we spend so much time, so much concern, fearing that we will lose that which is unlosable. I was trying to think why that is. Why that is. And I think one of the reasons that is is because I think we've made sin the point of the gospel. Gospel means good news, the good news of Jesus. We've made sin the focal point of the gospel. And so we fixate on it. We fixate on it. Okay, yes, Jesus forgives us and, and, and that, that sin is removed from us, but man, I, I still sin, I still make mistakes. And we get so focused on that that we don't even realize we have it backwards. What, what is the true point of the gospel? Is it our sin? No, no, see, sin is the problem. Sin is what separates us from God. The point of the gospel is God. It's the full story of life crushed into four minutes. The entirety of humanity in the palm of your hand crushed into one sentence. Listen, it's intense, right? God, our sins, paying everyone life. The greatest story ever told that's hardly ever told. God. Yes? God. The maker and giver of life, and by life I mean any and all manner and substance, seen and unseen, what can and can be touched, thoughts, image, emotions, love, atoms, and oceans, God. All of it is handiwork, one of which is masterpiece, made so uniquely that angels look curiously. The one thing in creation that was made with his imagery, the concept, so cold. It's the reason I stay bold, how God breathed in a man and he became a living soul. 
formed with the intent of being infinitely, intimately fond. Creator and creation held an eternal bond. And it was placed in perfect paradise till something went wrong. A species got deceived and started lusting for his job. An odd list of complaints as if the system ain't working. And used that same breath he graciously gave us to curse him. And that sin seed spread through our soul's genome. And by nature of your nature, your species, you participated in the mutiny, our, yes, our sins. It's nature inherited, black in the human heart. It was over before it started. Deceived from day one and led away by our own lust. There's not a religion in the world that doesn't agree that something's wrong with us. The question is, what is it? And how do we fix it? Are we eternally separated from a God that may or may not have existed? But that's another subject. Let's keep grinding besides trying to prove God is like defending a lion, homie. It'll need your help. Just unlock the cage. Let's move on on how our debt can be paid. Short and sweet, the problem is sin. Yes, sin. It's a cancer, an asthma. Choking out our life force, forcing separation from a perfect and holy God And the only way to get back is to get back to perfection But silly us, trying to pass the course of life without referring to a syllabus This is us, keep up your good deeds, chant, pray, meditate But all of that of course is spraying cologne on a corpse Or you could choose to ignore it as if something don't stink it's like stepping in dog poop and refusing to wipe your shoe, but all of that ends with how good is good enough. Take your silly list of good deeds and line them up against perfection, good luck. That's life past your pay grade. The cost of your soul, you ain't got a big enough piggy bank, but you could give it a shot. But I suggest you throw away the list, cause even your good acts are an extension of your selfishness. But here's where it gets interesting. I hope you're closely listening. Please don't get it twisted. It's what makes our faith unique. Here's what God says is part A of the gospel. You can't fix yourself. Quit trying, it's impossible. Sin brings death. Give God his breath back, you owe him. Eternally separated, and the only way to fix it is someone die in your place, and that someone gotta be perfect, or the payment ain't permanent. So if and when you find a perfect person, get him or her to willingly trade their perfection for your sin and death in. Clearly, since the only one that can meet God's criteria is God, God sent himself as Jesus to pay the cost for us. His righteousness. His death functions as payment. Yes, payment. Wrote a check with his life, but at the resurrection we all cheered cause that means the check cleared. Pierced feet, pierced hands, blood-stained son of man, fullness, forgiveness, free passage into the promised land. That same breath that God breathed into us, God gave up to redeem us. And anyone and everyone, and by everyone I mean everyone, who puts their faith and trust in Him, and Him alone can stand in full confidence of God's forgiveness. And here's what the promise is, that you are guaranteed full access to return to perfect unity by simply believing in Christ and Christ alone. You are receiving life. Yes, life. This is the gospel. God, our sins, paying everyone life.
So if we return back to our opening question, so who is Jesus? I'd invite you to, to not sweep this away or not dismiss this. If, if you've been walking with Jesus for a long while, I, I encourage you to, um, again, come back to a place. Let, let yourself be reaffirmed in, in who you know him to be. If you're still just exploring who Jesus is, take time to think on this. This isn't one of those messages where, it's, hey, here's a, a three-step thing we can go, what we can go and do today in light of this. We just need to know who Jesus is. Is the understanding that you walked in with this morning, is it correct? Is it too small? Is it way off? See, Jesus is the greatest life, and he has made our greatest life available to us through his sacrifice, reconciling us to the Father. The good news is found in Jesus because the good news is God. God was, is, and forever will be. God loved, God gave, God made a way. If the focus of your life is salvation from sin, as you think about this good news, if the focus is a salvation from sin, I invite you to expand it. I'm not saying correct it. I'm saying expand it. Let the focus of your life be God. That's my invitation to all of us here this morning. It may sound simple, but I think we get something, we hold on to it, we don't realize there's so much more. May the focus of your life be God. We're going to unpack this a little more next week. We'll look at what, what impact does our answer to, to who is Jesus have on our life? In light of who Jesus is, what does that mean? How should we live? How should we speak to others? How should we love? How should we create? How should we work? How should we suffer? We're going to unpack that next week, but let us just sit in this question of who is Jesus. Father God, we love you so much. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are the center, the, the fullness of all life. We thank you that even after we messed it up, that you still made a way, that you created, that you loved, that you gave. Expand our understanding, expand our thinking. Move us beyond the amazing act of, of, of salvation to the one who offered his life, to the one who sent his son, to the one who dwells inside of us and redeems us. Thank you, Father. We thank you, Jesus. We welcome you, Holy Spirit. You are God. Help us to live our life in light of that truth. Help us to come to a place of security and foundational truth and knowing, Jesus, that you are God. Thank you for all that you've done and all you continue to do as you hold this world together, as you forgive us and refine us as we're reconciled to you. In your name, amen.